message is part of the media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. If you open your Bibles to Ruth, it's an Old Testament book. You'll find that in the Old Testament. It's one of my favorite Old Testament books. Uh, I love stories. And... Um, I have to be really careful this morning that because I'm going to use that word story and storyline a lot. I'm even using an example this morning about one of the greatest storytellers of all time, Walt Disney. And I want you to know right from the beginning, though, that when we turn to the book of Ruth, this really happened. It is a story. There's a storyline there. There's people involved. But it was a true story. Uh, Walt Disney would often tell about, you know, fictitious stories and, and he would captivate us. But... Walt Disney, as successful as he's been, one of the things about Disney that he learned from the very beginning in storytelling is that mainly a story, a good story, an exciting story that kind of captured people's hearts and minds involved three things. Number one, it involved people that were just kind of almost ordinary people and weren't just natural heroes. If you think about a lot of the Disney characters, they're, they're just not really, you know, the storyline, they're not really heroes, and maybe until the end of the story, and then maybe they do something heroic then. But they're just not these people that come out of the woodwork, and they're already heroic. The second thing that Disney understood is that their plot development, and uh, it often involved a love story. Think about all the different Disney characters and stories that, you know, not every one of them is a love story, but most of the time there is kind of an affection between two different characters, and sometimes that story evolves around that. The third thing that Disney understood was that crisis and drama that threatened to keep them from living happily ever after was actually a good thing. How many times have we been watching a Disney movie, and it really could have been 15 minutes long all if they would have just ended the story right there. And yet, all of a sudden, the plot thickens. All of a sudden, instead of everything just, you know, the prince and the princess going off and ha- living happily ever after, all of a sudden, there's something drastic that happens. There's chaos. There's somebody that come in to throw the wrench into the perfect plan, and they're not able to go off and live happily ever after from that point on. And that's how he was able to tell a 15-minute story and turn it into about an hour and 15 minutes and get you to buy the ticket to go and, and watch and participate in that. Well, I want you to know that those kind of stories and storytelling have been around for a long time. And the book of Ruth, even though it's based 100% on a true story, really involves a lot of those things. These are not going to be heroic people. These are not going to be the people that, you know, from a very early age, you just see them with big muscles and this great call of God upon their life. They're ordinary people. They're people like you and I. Secondly, this is a love story. It's a different kind of love story, but it does involve love. And thirdly, it really does involve a whole bunch of drama and twists. And this morning we're going to get kind of to the place where we kind of lay the groundwork in Ruth. How many of you have been through a preaching series, a study series, and kind of went verse by verse through Ruth before. Just raise your hand. Okay? Great. Y'all come up and lead us the rest of the way. Now, I, I'm actually kind of excited that, I mean, that not too many people raised their hands, so maybe this will be very uh, exciting for you. And I pray that as you hear this story, and today, again, all we're doing is kind of laying the foundation, that it captivates your heart. It happens about a thousand years before Christ comes, before the... Christ comes, and yet it is a picture of Christ. 
So many times in the Old Testament, we have stories of real people doing real things, and yet God uses those stories to kind of give us a picture, kind of this foretaste of what he was going to fulfill when he sent Christ. Disney would use drama and twist and complications to thicken the plot. And, and this morning, we're only going to go to chapter 1. We're going to, we may be here for a while because we are going to go all the way through chapter 1. But we are going to see that the plot really does thicken. It's one of those things that we begin to see theology meeting real life. I tell people all the time, I love theology. We need to be grounded in good truth. But if theology never hits real life, then all it is is just head knowledge. Ruth is a book deep in theology. By the time we get done in about five weeks, you're going to say, man, that's, that's really a theological book, even though it was very much a story. We're going to see some great theology, especially about the sovereignty of God. And yet it touches real life with real people and real struggles. And what we begin to see is three things. God's providence, that is his sovereignty, his knowledge over all things. God's purposes, that nothing happens without the purpose of God. I mean, he always has purpose. Well, we can run in opposite directions, and God still can use his purposes in our lives. And we will see God's, at the final stages of this, God's provision. So think about those words, God's providence, his purposes, and his provision. That's what we will see throughout there. Now, the book of Ruth happened about 3,000 years ago, so about 1,000 years before Christ came and dwelt among this earth. It was a time of difficult economic times, and the, the land that they lived, uh, she lived in Bethlehem. You've heard of Bethlehem before? Uh, their, their family lives in Bethlehem. And not Ruth's family, but this other family that we're going to introduce, Naomi's family. And they lived there, and there was a famine. There was hard economic times. And so uh, people had to start making some really, really hard decisions. It was a time very much like today when there was a lot of moral disregard. Would you say that today is a day that we live in is, is kind of a day of moral disregard. Yeah. Those, those two words kind of, kind of you know, make a claim upon our culture and where we are living, moral disregard. People kind of do what they want to. Well, that was happening 3,000 years ago. We're not the first people to experience a society and a culture of moral disregard. It's happening then, and it's happening today. There was no real spiritual leadership. It was a time when... God had judges, but he really didn't have a king. He didn't have anybody else that was out there that was really prophetic in that nature of really representing God. So they were here this hard time when they were asking maybe a lot of questions. They didn't have a lot of spiritual leadership to just say, okay, hey, you've got to fight through. Here's, here's some truth for you. With all this going on, we see a verse. How many of you all have turned to Ruth? If you have your Bibles, you've turned to Ruth. Okay. It may be on the same page, it may be on the page before. The last verse in the book of Judges, this is the book right before it. Okay, you're on that page? What is the very last verse? Anybody have that that they don't mind reading? That was excellent, but I want to get you to, to say it even louder, Okay. <laughs> Yeah, he did what was right in his own eyes. 
Well, that, we can relate to that, the, a culture kind of doing what was right in their own eyes. So now we go to the very first verse of Ruth. You know, th- that was the preceding verse. And it says, okay, here's the climate of the day. People are just out there doing whatever they want. This is the, the kind of uh, the way of the land. And then we go to the very first verse, and look what it says. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Verse 2. The name of the man was Elimelech. And the name of his wife, Naomi. And the name of his two sons were Malon and Shelon. And they were Ephorites from Bethlehem and Judah. And they went into the country of Moab and remained there. Okay, these people, they're followers of God. They're in Bethlehem. Do we know Bethlehem is a pretty holy city? Or is that at least a significant city? And so they're, they're there. And then there's severe famine. Uh, they're wondering, what do we do? Where do we go? It's kind of ironic. Does anybody know what the word Bethlehem means? House of bread. It really is. It really means the house of bread. And here in the house of bread, there's a famine. And so they go to Moab... For bread. They're going, we've got to feed our children. We've got to go look for food. We've got to go look for jobs. Let's go to this place called Moab. Now, you don't have to be a real scholar, but you probably had to hang out in church a little bit. Moab, known for good or bad. Yeah. Most of the time when you were, you know, when the Bible says, and the Moabites, it's not usually saying that they had revival and that they were just, you know, helping people out. Most of the time it was like, and the Moabites came in and slaughtered the, you know, it, it just, they took over places and they were, just weren't the nicest of people. So here we have this godly family that's in a difficult time, in difficult situations, uh, a man who wants to just take care of his family. Hey, we're supposedly in the house of bread here in Bethlehem and yet there's no bread. Maybe I'll go to Moab. And so I want you to kind of put that back there because one of the things that we're going to see in the story today is that there's a lot of circumstances that happen and they cause the question, why did this happen because of this? And we try to tie some of the difficult things that happen back to other decisions. And we're never told in the Bible, hey, the reason this happened that was bad is because of this bad choice that they made there. It's very important for us to understand that in the book of Ruth. More importantly, it's very important for us to understand that in the book of our own lives. How many times have we had something that really bad happen? I mean, I wonder if it's because I did this. Now, sometimes it was a direct result. We reap what we sow. We go there and we decide that we're going to do this action. Well, no, I'll just get gas at the next gas station, even though the light's on and it's below E, and we run out of gas. We can't sit there and look to heavens and go, God, Is this because when I was in the third grade, I cheated on that test? God, if he would respond in a situation like this, no, it's because you didn't get gas at the last gas station when you still had some. Not diminishing the fact that there are some things in our lives, folks, that are cause and result. You know, you do this and this happens. But one of the predicaments that we get when when chaos comes to our life, when drama comes to our life, when a twist comes into our life, Sometimes we wonder, was it because I did this? Was it because of this? And you know that there's sometimes that God shows you a connection? He answers the why question. And there's a lot of times that God doesn't. Is he just stingy? Is he just mean? Or is he trying to say, no, that really doesn't. The two don't relate. You're going to see a lot of that in the book of Ruth. 
where a lot of things happen that don't seem super great to Naomi and her family. And uh, we're going to go, was it because they went to Moab? I bet that's what the reason was. I'll let you decide on some of those. They have two sons. Naomi and Elimelech have two sons. They, go, they leave the promised land, the land of bread, the, the place of bread, and they go out. Uh, the Israelites, they worship Yahweh, the one true God. The Moabites had many, many gods. They did not fear the one true God, the God that we would uh, worship. And uh, in fact, if we go back in Scripture, Moses wrote in Deuteronomy chapter 23, he said, do not associate with the Moabites. So they had had a reputation for a while. It wasn't just, okay, the Moabites have turned bad, but they used to be good. No, he said, I don't want you. Moses says this years and years before. Hey, Israelites, separate yourself from these people. They're kind of evil. They're, they're not God-fearing. And, and, and steer yourself away from the Moabites. He, he mentions them specifically. But a dad needs to feed his children. Elimelech says, you know what I do? I, I've got a wife. She's starving. I can't find a job. I can't find money for bread. I can't find bread in the house of bread. What I do, I've heard that they have bread over in Moab, and I guess I will go over there. Uh, folks, one of the first predicaments that we see is, was this right or wrong? And we're never told. We just know that he does it. He leaves the land that is known to worship God to a land that doesn't worship God, but actually worships uh, foreign gods and, and other gods and false, uh, all the false gods. Look what happens in verse 3. They get over there, they, they kind of plant, they're, they're doing life. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. And again, one of the first questions, okay, was it because he led them wrong? Did he go into this land where he should not have gone? We're never told. All we know is that tragedy happens. He goes there to save his family. And then he gets over there, and, and we don't know the exact time frame of all of this. We're given some details, but not all the details. And all of a sudden, he dies. So now you have Naomi, and you have two sons. Lamech dies. We don't know why. Sin, rebellion, natural causes, not told. There was a famine in the land. We're not told sin, rebellion of the Israelites. We're not told. Look what happens, though, in verse 4 and 5. For the next ten years, it goes from bad to worse. These took Moabite wives, the two sons. They took Moabite wives. The names of one was Orpah, and the other name was Ruth. And they lived there about ten years. So dad dies. Sons grow up. They, they marry Moabites. Just with your knowledge of the Bible, was that accepted or kind of frowned upon from God? Yeah, frowned upon. So again, we see them not making really wise choices or at least choices that kind of line up biblically. And, and that's what causes all these why questions. I, I wonder if this happened because they were disobedient here. Well, we really don't know because we're not told that. It's easy to get captivated by the why questions. We'll talk more about that as we develop this story or as it develops before us. They lived there about 10 years and both Malon and Shilon died so that the women that uh, this woman was left without her two sons and her husband. So, so Naomi comes, her husband dies, her sons marry Moabite women, probably frowned upon. Now both of those husbands die, and, and so it's Naomi 
and Orpah, that's a cool name, and Ruth. Not a good situation. Is this because they married pagan women? We don't know why. We keep on asking this why question, and all the Bible tells us is that just the rest of the story. But why questions come so naturally to us? I've mentioned to you before that there's three why questions that when trouble hits our lives, guys, that we almost naturally ask. Why me? Why this? Why now? In some form or fashion, have you asked yourself those questions in life before? It's amazing. It's just kind of a generic thing. And it doesn't mean that we're generic people. It just means this is common to all of us, that we come into lives and, and we want answers. It's not that we're just, you know, that we don't think difficulties are going to happen to us, but when difficulty comes, and all of a sudden there's a major twist in our life. It could be sickness. It could be the loss of job. It could be famine in the land. It could be whatever, that we begin to ask these questions. Okay, God, why me? I'm not the worst guy. I'm not the best guy in the world, but I'm not the worst guy. And why this? Out of all the things that could happen, why Why this? And God, do you not know that this is not really good timing? We're just getting over this other difficulty. And yet this other, you know, this new difficulty comes in. These are the questions that come with tragedy of life. This is, these are the questions that come with fallen people living in a fallen world. And we've all asked these questions. If you haven't asked these questions yet, I promise you there will be a day in your life that you will ask these questions. And here's the thing. It is my belief, just my belief, that God is not always going to answer those questions for you. When you're going through those hardships, when you're going through those times, wouldn't it be great in one way, from our human perspective, if God said that? You know, if he answered those questions? We said, why me? And God actually began to give us an answer to that, rather than, why not you? I really don't want to hear that from God, why not you? But oftentimes... We would ask, why me? And God has no answer for us. Why this? And why now? And God has no answer for us. Is it because there's not an answer, or is it because the answer is not nearly as important as other things that God is trying to teach us? And I think I may have just given away the rest of the story. We are people that get caught up in the whys. At the end of the day, this happens, and unless it was directly related, does it really matter why it happened? Or what we need is a solution. At the end of the day, if there's famine in the land and we're hungry and we can't feed our family, it may be important if it's a spiritual lesson of the why. But at the end of the day, isn't it important just that the rescuer comes in and gives us bread and feeds our family? And this is the story of Ruth. It's not going to answer all the why questions. But it's a picture of a rescuer that's going to come a thousand years later to the biggest why question of all. Why, God, would you ever love me? And he provides for us his own son. This is Ruth. And yet until we get to those details, we begin to get all these other interesting details. We see this shattered life, verse 6 and 7. When she arose with her daughters-in-law to return to the country of Moab, For she had heard uh, 
For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. She's out there and they say, hey, do you know that Bethlehem's actually kind of going through a little economic, you know, spurt now? They, they have bread again. You, you can go back home. So Naomi goes, oh, I'm in Moab right now. I'd rather go back to my family. What's left of my family, I'll, I'll go back there. Look what happens in verse 7. So she set out from that place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. She's going to go back to Bethlehem. As they're going back, she realizes there's really nothing back in what would be for them a foreign land for her daughter-in-laws. So look at verse 8. By Naomi said to her two daughter-in-laws, Go return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. This is a nice mother-in-law. This is a godly mother-in-law. Hey, I'm going to go return home. There's nothing. I'm in a foreign land. We came here for food. Now I hear that there's food back home in Bethlehem. I'm going to go back. And, you know, even though our lives have now been linked together because you married uh, my sons, that's going to be a foreign land to you. And there's really nothing back there for you. So God bless you. Go back to your mothers and to your own family here in Moab. And you stay here. The Lord grant that, he may, that you might find rest, each of you in your house of your husband. Then she kissed them, and they let, lifted her up uh, their voices and wept. This was a loving relationship that went on. Verse 10. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I not yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say that I have hope, even if I should have a husband uh, this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? What she's talking about is a cultural thing that if you're, uh, they were married to her sons, and if there was another son that came along, that son could marry this widow. And kind of keep you in the family. And she goes, look, number one, and Naomi's going, I- I'm old. <laughs> and I don't know that there's really a lot of guys that are really out there that, uh, that think that, you know, that we're going to get together. And even if I did get with them and marry them this very night, and, and we conceived a child, would you wait for that child to grow up to marry them? In other words, I, I look down the path and I don't see a lot of hope here for you. Go back to your own families. Makes logical sense. Two women thought it over and they came to different conclusions. Orpah decides to go back to her family. She listens to her mother-in-law and says, that makes sense to me. I'll go back to my own family. But Ruth decides to go with Naomi. And from this is a part of scripture that has been used in weddings for thousands of years. It's one of the most sentimental, emotional verses or pack of verses in, in the whole Bible. Listen to what Ruth writes. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. 
May the Lord do to me, and more also, if anything but death separates me from you. How many of you have heard that passage in, in some form or fashion before? Even if you've never read the book of Ruth, and you knew that was from Ruth, and you didn't know the context of it, maybe you've heard it at a wedding. Because it expresses this great covenant of marriage. That, man, we're together, and hardship can come, and difficult times can come, but we're together. And where you go, I'm going to go. And your people are going to be my people, and your God is going to be my God. And, and, and I'm going to be buried where you're going to be buried. And we read that at a wedding, and people go, man, that's so sweet. This is where it came from. Naomi goes, go back to your people. There's nothing for you in Bethlehem. And Ruth says, no, you're there and your God is there. These verses have become famous. They've been kind of heartfelt. It's the part that people know from Ruth. But before you get all quick with the, the warm, fuzzy feelings, like, man, this, is, this story's going to turn out pretty good, I can tell. This is the 15 minutes into a Walt Disney story where you could end there and they really could kind of live happily ever after. But does Walt Disney ever stop after 15 minutes? No, there's got to be some villain that comes on the scene. There's got to be some catastrophe. There's got to be some difficulty that happens so they can get that 15-minute story into an hour and 30-minute film. Now, I'm not saying that God did that here so that he could make an hour and 30-minute film. I'm just saying the story is not over yet. It gets a little bit warm. It gets a little bit fuzzy. But look what happens. Verse 19. So the two of them went until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? Now she's been gone, we know, at least 10 years. Probably 12, 15 years. We really don't know. But no, at least 10 years because it was 10 years between the time that her son's Married and, and they died and left these two widows. Plus whatever time that her own husband had died. 12, 15 years. Do you change after 12, 15 years? More importantly, do you change when there's tragedy and loss in your life? Does it wear upon your face, upon your countenance, upon your heart? Anybody know what the name Naomi means? You're just a Hebrew scholar. Pleasant. pleasant. So her name is Pleasant. I mean, this is the one that when she walks in the room, everybody goes, Naomi's here. Pleasant is here. Happy is here. This is her name. She comes back after all this catastrophe, all this loss in her life. And the women go, you know, it looks like Naomi. But then again, it doesn't look like Naomi. Naomi, she, she, she looks different. She, she looks worn. She, she looks kind of beaten. Verse 20. Some of the saddest words in all the Bible. She hears that they're saying, is this Naomi? She can tell, yeah, I'm not a little teenager anymore, okay? I've aged, I've put on a couple pounds, but life has been hard. That's why, this is what you're seeing on my face. Uh, these wrinkles, this, this hardship, this is what you're seeing on my face. And here's her response, verse 20. She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Don't call me pleasant. 
Don't call me, you know, the happy girl anymore. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly. You know what Mara means? Bitter. Isn't that amazing? She comes back instead of going, you're home. They talk, man, you've changed. You're not the same girl that left here. Yeah, I, I was happy girl when I left here. <laughs> I was a pleasant girl when I left here. I left here with a husband and two sons. I've come back without those. And I, I've come back bitter. That's what she says in the next verse, verse 21. I went away full. And what's the next three words? What's the next three words? In the Lord. In the Lord. She doesn't know the why, but she knows the who. She's got good theology, guys. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? Why call me pleasant? Why call me happy girl? When the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. So much for happily ever after. So much for coming back to the house of bread, finding plenty of bread there, and everybody gone in, and they all lived happily ever after. This is, would you say that this is a very sad story right now? And, and what we're going to find in the next three chapters, guys, is, is good theology mixed with real life. You may not have been through this. You may not have lost a husband and and two children. You may not have been through that. But we all go through crisis. We all go through chaos. There's all been times in our lives that we've said, why me? Why this? Why now? Every one of us have done that. And I don't know that God is opposed to those questions. I just don't know that he's always going to answer those questions. She doesn't know the why, but she knows the who. And right now the who is kind of hurtful to her. She said, the Lord did this. She's got good theology. She goes, the Lord has at least allowed this. She's not saying that the Lord caused it, but the Lord has at least allowed this to happen. And and I am not a happy girl anymore. Now I'm a bitter girl. And that's where we end the first chapter. Well, Bobby, that's uh, not a good place. can Can we at least kind of hit a happy mark a little bit before we leave? Uh, No, because we really want to kind of sit here for a while. But here's the application, and then we'll go home. Right now in your life, this may be exactly where you are. Asking a lot of whys. And the Lord has not graced you with one answer yet. Except the fact that he is God, and he alone is God. And that he's good God. And he's a kind God. And he's going to send a rescuer to this world. And that's all you have. All you have is just these theological truths. But on the personal level, you are bitter because you used to be the happy girl, the happy guy. And and tragedy has happened and you just find yourself not happy anymore. And you're going, okay, God, why? Why this? Why me? Why now? Quick principle, then we'll go home, guys. The answer to the why questions in life 
really are going to bring very little peace. The question in life is not so much why, but who. There is one that can give you peace, even when he doesn't give you the answer to why. I don't want to do a spoiler alert and tell you the next three chapters. But it's going to get better. Not because the whys are explained, but the who is understood. And that's what I want to leave in your heart today. Because if we meant tomorrow night or the next night or the next night, and you said, but why? Why, Pastor, why? I don't know that I could give you the answers. And I don't know that God is going to give you the answers. I don't know that God is always going to supply that. But I can tell you the who. And what matters on the darkest of nights of your lives is not the why nearly as much as the who. There will be sometimes that God gives you the why. And sometimes that's only because for, for, for edification of, of going, okay, it was something, you, a decision you made, and you did this, and I don't want you to, to get in this calamity again. So I'm going to tell you, this happened because of this. And sometimes God shows us that, that we just reap what we sowed. But, but I'm telling you guys, there's a lot of times in life, in 36 years of pastoring, that I have sat across a couch or a table from somebody, and they've asked why questions. And this bright pastor didn't have the answers. As far as I knew, I couldn't find them any scripturally. And all I had to share with them was not the why, but the who. And today, if you're asking the why, oh, I can't answer that, but I can show you the who. I can show you that there's a God where well, it's not a finished story yet, guys. It's not over. There's three more chapters to go. And God is going to make much of himself in those three chapters. And we're going to see a life where there is bitterness and there's hardship. And she's not the happy girl anymore. And we're going to see that because of the who, not because of the why, but because of the who, that there is hope for tomorrow. And and, and that's what I want to leave on your heart this morning. It's not answers to why. You may never in this lifetime ever get them. And then when you go to heaven, you're not going to say, well, God, why? It's not going to matter at that time. There's going to be a lot of why questions that will never be answered this place or the next. But there is one thing that's important in the midst of that dark night, those bitter moments when you go from happy girl to bitter girl. Don't call me Naomi. You call me bitter. You call me Mara. Because this is my life right now. I'm just bitter. I'm just heavy. I'm just, I'm just hurt. That what you need to know in the midst of that is that there is God. El Shaddai. Yahweh. I want you to look at one thing and then we'll go. Do you look back there in verse 21 and see the, the, uh, the word Lord? Do you notice? Can we go back to that? Sorry, guys. Do you see the, the word Lord? Do you, do you notice anything about the word Lord there? It's, it's mentioned twice. We could go up other verses and we could see it again. Capitalize. Anybody know why? This is the personal name of God. This isn't just a description of God. Hey, there's a God out there. When the Old Testament, the way that they kind of got across Yahweh, this personal God, El Shaddai, this very personal God, they would capitalize In the midst of all her hurt, she goes, he's still my God. 
And we see that throughout. That's what actually Ruth said to her. If you go up a couple other verses, you notice when that when Ruth says that my God will be your God. And she talks about the Lord. It's capitalized. In other words, she said, this is personal to me. I'm not just following you because you like God a whole bunch and I'm going to like God. No, it's become personal to me. Guys, don't struggle with the whys. I, I know the why questions are going to come. Man, you just focus on the who. This week, you focus on the who. And I promise you, in the light of the who, the whys will diminish. They won't go away. We're still going to have that human instinct to want to know connections and why. But I promise you, when you put your eyes on the who, the whys greatly diminish. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we love you. And Father, we are driven to the whys. And Father, it would be so easy as we close out this first chapter of Ruth to say, God, why did you do all this? Man, that's too much calamity for one family. And we would want to know if it was their sin of going into Moab. We would want to know if it's these, these two sons' sin of, of marrying Moabite women. We want to know all the details. But Father, all that Naomi really needs at this point is to know the who. And Father, when there's loss in our life, when there's difficulty in our life, we're going to ask why. Will you turn our hearts to who you are? That as we turn our eyes upon Jesus and look in his glorious face, that all these things of earth begin to grow strangely down. Could theology mean real life? And Father, that's my prayer for this morning as we close out, that we would just focus on who you are. You are a God that will send a rescuer, and you did a thousand years later. And Duncan Stevens, this morning, makes proclamation of who you are by being buried in the waters of baptism and risen to new life in Christ Jesus. We praise you. You are kind. You are good. You are worthy of our praise. And we love you, Father, as we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook.